What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Wimbledon is one of the world's most iconic sporting events. The 500-member private club, located in the suburbs of London, takes home nearly $60 million in profit from a two-week event each summer. But they are also leaving a lot of money on the table. So today's podcast is going to break down the $450 million business behind Wimbledon, including its media rights, ticket sales, sponsorships, concessions, and merchandise sales. I had a bunch of fun putting this episode together, and I hope you all enjoy it. Let's get right into it. Okay, so I think we all probably know by now that Wimbledon is one of the world's most exclusive sporting events. Held at the All England Lawn Tennis Club in London, England, the historic tournament first took place in 1877, and it's the world's oldest tennis tournament. The grass courts, they're mowed, painted, and mopped every morning, leaving behind a pristine 100% perennial ryegrass mix that is cut to exactly 8 millimeters in height at all times. Every player wears white from head to toe, and security at the club is so tight that eight-time Wimbledon champion Roger Federer says he was mistakenly denied access from the club last year. But this history and prestige is exactly what makes Wimbledon so special. You just have to see it for yourself to really believe it. So today we'll dive into the business behind tennis's most famous event. But primarily I want to talk about two things. First, how a private club with fewer than 500 members makes nearly $60 million in profit each summer. And two, why this same club intentionally leaves $75 million on the table. So Wimbledon is unique in the fact that unlike other major sporting events like the Super Bowl, World Cup, Masters, or Olympics, the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club AELTC, produces a 30-plus page annual report breaking down its finances. They literally put it all together for you. So last year, they reported that the Wimbledon Tennis Tournament brought in $440.5 million in revenue to the club. Again, $440 million in revenue to the club, and it resulted in a profit of $58.7 million. So they're operating at a 13% margin there. Now, the club doesn't break out these numbers much further than that. But based on previous reporting by Forbes, I think it was done in 2018, they gave a breakout of kind of each category from broadcast rights, concessions, and merchandise, and what percentage of the total those represented. So we can kind of estimate what the total revenue would look like for each category. And what we come down to when you do the math is that global broadcast rights represent about 56% of the total, right? $440 million. So broadcasting rights are about $246 million of that total, 56%. Ticket sales represent about 16%, so $70 million. Sponsorships are 16% as well, again, $70 million. And concessions and merchandise are about 12%, the smallest category, at $53 million. So in addition to being one of the world's most exclusive sporting events, Wimbledon is also one of the world's most lucrative sporting events. But similar to the Masters, Wimbledon could potentially make much more money with some estimates suggesting that the tournament is intentionally leaving behind roughly $75 million. And I want to break it down for you. So we're going to go through each one of these categories between broadcasting rights, ticket sales, sponsorships, concessions, and merchandise. But let's start with Wimbledon's global broadcast rights. Like many other large-scale sporting events, Wimbledon makes most of its money selling its global broadcasting rights. For example, An estimated $246 million of their $440 million in revenue, the 56% I just referenced, currently comes from broadcasting agreements. That counts both domestically in the United Kingdom and internationally in countries like the United States. 
But the interesting part is that ESPN currently pays much more for the U.S. Open at $75 million annually than Wimbledon at $42 million annually. For reference, the U.S. Open deal that they have with ESPN is 11 years, $825 million, which is $75 million per year. The deal that ESPN has with Wimbledon is 12 years at $500 million, which equals out to $42 million per year. Now, look, most of this can be explained by the fact that the U.S. Open is a domestic tournament for ESPN versus Wimbledon being an international tournament for ESPN. But still, my point is simple. It's super impressive that Wimbledon can command such a high number for its international rights alone because their domestic TV rights deal with BBC pays two to three times that annual number. Now, look, Wimbledon isn't the only one getting paid big bucks for TV appearances. There was this famous report that came out in 2017 that revealed BBC was paying John McEnroe, the former tennis player, between $210,000 and $281,000 for about 30 TV appearances during the two-week tournament. Now, BBC drew criticism from this report because, one, BBC is a taxpayer-funded network, so people obviously didn't like hearing that McEnroe was making so much money for just two weeks of work. And then, two, John McEnroe's salary was 10 times more than what other people like Martina Navratilova were getting paid by the same network, BBC. But not much has changed, and McEnroe has continued to work with BBC each year since. And my guess is, he's actually probably getting paid more now than he was before. But that brings me up to the second point. I want to talk about Wimbledon's ticket sales bringing in $70 million a year. Now, ticket sales are the second largest revenue driver for Wimbledon, but it's also one of the areas where they leave a lot of money on the table. For example, Wimbledon broke a record last year with 515,000 people attending the tournament over two weeks. That brought in, again, roughly $70 million in revenue. But Wimbledon has refused to make its courts bigger over the years, and the tournament attracts 115,000 fewer fans than the 2023 French Open, 325,000 fewer fans than the 2023 Australian Open, and 373,000 fewer fans than the 2022 U.S. Open. And if you were just to compare the center courts at Wimbledon and then Arthur Ashe Stadium, there's a significant difference. The max capacity of Wimbledon's center court is 15,000 spectators, where at Arthur Ashe, you can fit almost 24,000 spectators. So we're talking about something that's maybe 70 or 80% bigger in size. And that makes a significant difference over the course of a two-week tournament, where now some of these tournaments are averaging anywhere between, you know, 115,000 to 375,000 more fans than Wimbledon is. So they're leaving a lot of money in the table by intentionally suppressing the amount of people that can come to these events and not building bigger stadiums. And the tickets are kind of unique too, because they're not really that expensive if you're able to buy them on the primary market. And they go reverse in price, right? So if you think about a center court ticket, you can get them on the primary market through their system for $100 on days one and two. They go up to $127 for days three and four, 165 for days five and six, and they go all the way up, right? For the last round uh, on days 13 and 14, towards the end of the tournament, you're going to be paying $324 for center court tickets through their system, right? Primary market we're talking about, which really isn't that bad. This reminds me a lot of the masters where they sell tickets through a lottery and they could charge 10 times more, right? If they just charge what tickets go for in the secondary market, they can make way more money, but that's not what they choose to do. But like I said, center court tickets get more expensive as the tournament goes on because you're obviously seeing better and better matches each time at center court. But the ground passes are the exact opposite. 
days one through eight, you're going to be paying about $35 for ground pass tickets to Wimbledon. Then they go down to $25 for days nine through 11, $20 for days 12 and 13. And the final day, you're paying $10 to get in on the ground of Wimbledon. So it makes a lot of sense because center court gets better as the tournament goes on and the ground passes get worse as the tournament goes on. But they essentially go in reverse. And Wimbledon also does one other unique thing. They issue the benchers. These are every five years these get issued. And they're essentially tickets to the Wimbledon championships for a five-year period. The money that is raised through these helps fund the development and upkeep of the Wimbledon grounds. But regardless, even if they were able to just charge a fraction of what these tickets would go for on the secondary market, Wimbledon could easily raise the prices and make tens of millions of dollars more in revenue every single year. This is obviously one of the biggest categories where they're leaving a lot of money on the table. But another category is sponsorships. They take a very long-term sponsorship strategy. And if you attended Wimbledon or if you even watched it on TV, my guess is that most people probably couldn't name a single sponsor of the event. And that's precisely how Wimbledon wants it to be. All right, everyone, quick interruption from today's episode to talk about the sponsor of this podcast, ButcherBox. I've been ordering from ButcherBox for a few years now, and it's the single best solution I've found to save time while guaranteeing the quality of your food. Everyone probably knows what ButcherBox is, but they deliver 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, free-range organic chicken, humanely raised pork, and wild-caught seafood directly to your doorstep. It's literally that easy, and it tastes incredible. So ditch the butcher lines today and guarantee the freshness of your meat with ButcherBox. And here's the best part. If you sign up today, ButcherBox is offering all of my listeners two pounds of ground beef for free every time they order over the next year. Let me say that again. Two pounds of ground beef every time you order over the next year, you get for free. So go to butcherbox.com slash Joe Pomp and use code Joe Pomp, all caps, Joe Pomp at checkout to get that discount today. Wimbledon is estimated to leave tens of millions of dollars on the table when it comes to sponsorships. That's because unlike other tournaments like the US Open or other tennis tournaments like that, Wimbledon favors long-term partners and intentionally limits the exposure that each sponsor receives in the public eye during the tournament. Let me give you an example. Wimbledon has 14 official sponsors for this year's tournament. Slazinger is the biggest. They receive the most inventory and they have sponsored the event since 1902. They make tennis balls, etc. But logos on most of the courts are black, right? So if you look at any of the courts during Wimbledon, when you watch the tournament this year, look at any of the courts on the outside. Wimbledon has black logos, right? So you don't even see them. I'm looking at a picture of it right now. The court is pristine. It's all green. All you see is green and white. It's lush. It looks really nice. The walls in the background or at center court or anywhere where you would typically see logos plastered everywhere. Like I said, at tournaments like the US Open, there's nothing. There's nothing there. There could be logos, but they're going to be blacked out and not visible to the normal eye unless you were specifically looking for them. Now, look, this changes a little bit at center court in court number one. They have white logos instead of black ones. But again, they're really small. They're on the back wall. And it's something that you typically wouldn't even see unless you're situated within the first few rows of the match. So there's this quote from uh, Wimbledon's commercial media director, Mick Desmond, a few years ago that he told Forbes. He said, and I quote, our clean court philosophy is at the heart of our brand, end quote. That's literally all you need to know. It is so important because that's what they want Wimbledon to be remembered for, that they intentionally do not put inventory everywhere, right? They could plaster logos everywhere they want. Companies would pay them tens of millions of dollars to do it, but they don't do it. They intentionally limit the number of partners they work with 
and often accept less money, enabling them to control the terms of the partnership and optimize for long-term relationships over short-term cash. Who does this remind you of? Like I mentioned with the tickets, this has Augusta National and the Masters written all over it. Now, the next category is Wimbledon's concessions and merchandise. This is a big category for Wimbledon, even though it's one of the smallest revenue generating line items for them. They're still making more than $50 million annually off these two categories alone, even though it represents just 12% of their overall tournament revenue. Now, the majority of this $50 million in revenue comes through merchandise. Wimbledon is selling a lot of merchandise. They say that in a typical year, they're doing 155,000 merchandise transactions over two weeks with 450,000 products being sold. Now, look, I don't like to do public math, but that's about three items per transaction over two weeks, 450,000 different products being sold on the grounds at Wimbledon and online. Again, it's a little bit different than the Masters here because they actually do sell the merch online. But the merch isn't cheap. They have shorts, t-shirts, sweatshirts, jackets, and it ranges from $50 to $250 per items. And I have some cool stats here that Wimbledon actually put out a couple of years ago. They said that during a normal tournament, they'll sell over 58,000 baseball caps, over 27,000 towels. They'll sell over 16,000 rackets and logo t-shirts, the logo t-shirts. They'll sell almost 15,000 sweatbands. They'll sell 3,200 personalized embroidered baseball caps and towels, which comes out to 2.9 million individual stitches. And then they also sell the Wimbledon balls, the used balls, are sold daily at the grounds, and all the proceeds go to the Wimbledon Foundation. But don't forget about concessions either. Concessions are another big part of this too, although they are smaller than the merchandise section. Wimbledon is reportedly selling around 190,000 servings of its famous strawberries and cream each year. I've never had it, but I've heard it's absolutely incredible. For those of you that are listening that have gone to Wimbledon, I'm sure you've gotten it before. It's the biggest part of the event and one of the most famous pieces of it for sure. And here's the best part. It only costs you $3 per serving. Again, like the Masters, they have kept the price intentionally low for people to enjoy the atmosphere when they are at the venue, despite the United Kingdom, like other places around the world, seeing record levels of inflation over the last few years. So that's the breakdown of like kind of the different categories when it comes to Wimbledon and the finances, everything from media rights, tickets, merchandise, sponsorships, et cetera. You can see where they're leaving some money on the table. Again, the total revenue line item is going to be estimated at around $450 million, nearly $450 million over two weeks each summer. And they're making a substantial amount of profit. They're making about 13% margins, comes out to $58.7 million in profit. And they could be making a lot more. I just went through some of the categories, everything from tickets and sponsorships to other things like that. They could be making more money. But again, they intentionally limit this to have control. Like I said, the best example is the Masters at Augusta National. But before we leave, I want to talk about a few what we'll call conversation starters. I like to do this at the end of the newsletter or the end of the podcast sometimes because it's just like random facts that don't necessarily fit anywhere into the newsletter. But they're cool if you're going to be watching the tournament with your family or friends or just want to sound smart like you know what you're talking about. So these are like, you know, we'll say like seven to 10 different things uh, that are just cool facts. Number one, the grounds at Wimbledon contain 38 grass courts. So there's 38 courts across the entire facility. 20 of them are practice courts and 18 championship courts. Number two, a trained Harris Hawk named Rufus flies around every morning, nearly every morning, at the grounds of Wimbledon before the gates open 
and Rufus is primarily being used to keep pigeons away from the grass courts. Why is Rufus doing this? Because the grounds crew puts in a lot of damn work to make this event happen. Wimbledon has a 28-person grounds crew that cuts and relines the courts every single morning. Like I said, the grass is pristine. It is perfect. It's cut to 8 millimeters every single morning on the dot. Players should know exactly what to expect when they get there, which we'll get to in a second. Wimbledon requires a staff of 6,300 workers. 1,300 of those workers are employed by the All England Tennis Club, and then 5,000 of those workers are basically part-time employees that are employed by other employment partners. However, the ball children, the ball kids, are unpaid by the All England Tennis Club, but their uniform and expenses are covered by the club. Home rentals. Home rentals are another big thing when it comes to sporting events like this. Masters, again, another great example. People are renting out their homes for an entire week or a weekend, getting tens of thousands, if not more, in dollars for that. And Wimbledon is no different. The average home, there's basically like three different criteria that we can talk about when it comes to homes at Wimbledon. And the best example is like a one-bedroom flat, which is suitable for what we'll call like a lower-ranked player with minimal guests. So it's just one person, maybe a lower-ranked player who's staying by themselves or has one or two other people with them. They're going to be paying about $4,600 for two weeks. The next level up, we'll call it, is like a big house. This is a six-bedroom house. It'd be fit for like a top-ranked player with a large entourage. They have coaches, they have physios, they have all their people with them, their staff. Six-bedroom house. They would pay $24,000 for a two-week stay. And then the biggest properties, these are typically used by corporate sponsors who want to wine and dine their clients throughout the entire duration of the Wimbledon tournament. Those corporate sponsors are paying about $36,000 for a two-week stay at the biggest properties in London during that time. Now, there's a lady named Joanna Doniger who rents out 150 homes every year to players, sponsors, and TV networks during Wimbledon. She owns a company called Tennis London. It's a fascinating business. I read about it a few years ago, and I recommend all of you looking it up if you're into the short-term rental market. And it's really cool. She earns a 15% commission on all home rentals she does during Wimbledon. She's rented homes to Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Serena and Venus Williams, and many others. And the people that are renting out their homes or apartments or whatever it is during this time frame, they usually just take a two-week vacation like you would when you own a home in Augusta, Georgia. Next up, prize money. Record $56.5 million in prize money at this year's tournament. That's an 11% increase year over year. With the men's and the women's singles winners taking home $2.9 million each. Another thing, obviously, is the all-white. It has become a custom over the years. People have fought it, fought it, fought it, fought it. Roger Federer wore shoes. I forget what year it was, but I think they had orange soles. Serena Williams had to change her clothes once because the strap on her bra was like pink. Right? There's things that have gone back and forth where people had to, had to change their uniforms because it wasn't all white. Everyone at the England Lawn and Tennis Club, the members and the people that are competing at Wimbledon are expected to wear what we'll call predominantly white, but essentially all white while they're competing on the tennis courts. There's a few different caveats to this, but essentially you are required to wear white while competing. Now, one of the other things that's really interesting about this tournament is the membership aspect. So as I mentioned, there's 500 members. There's a cap, right? The club only has 500 members at any given time. This consists of full members, life members, honorary members, temporary members, and junior members. And they're split up into a bunch of different categories. But essentially to become a member that's not an honorary member, you have to be a British citizen. And there's a long running joke that the easiest way to get a membership to the club 
is actually just to win Wimbledon, right? Because there's only 500 spots. Most of them are taken by full members or life members. And when you win Wimbledon, you get a membership, right? You become an honorary member of the club. You can come use the club. You can visit the club. You can go to the club, whatever. Now, one of the other interesting things here, and the last point I want to talk about today is how the court has changed over time. We talked a little bit about the grounds crew and the length of the grass and the type of the grass and how they reline it every morning and all that kind of stuff, even how they use a hawk, right, to keep pitches away. But one of the things that's been interesting to track over the years is that the, the surface has significantly changed, right? And there's some players that still struggle, right? And they just aren't very good on grass courts and they prefer clay or they prefer hard courts or whatever it is. The Wall Street Journal put out a good article on this the other day, actually, if you want to read more about it. But they were talking about how the grass has changed. And the grass itself hasn't changed. Wimbledon has been doing the exact same treatment for more than 20 years. The last significant change to the grass itself was when they switched from a 70% blend of ryegrass to 100% perennial ryegrass. And that came, I think, in like 2001 or 2002. So over two decades ago. So the grass has maintained the same. But British summers have increasingly gotten hotter and hotter and hotter over the years. And it's changed the condition of the soil. And what has happened is it has made the grass surface feel much closer to hard courts and clay courts. And this isn't just a feeling. There's evidence behind this. There's a statistics website called Tennis Abstract. And what they did was they analyzed data pulled from over 12,000 matches across a bunch of different courts, hard courts, clay courts, grass courts, et cetera. And they found that rallies on grass courts used to be 0.75 shots shorter than hard courts, right? So a, a typical rally would be nearly one shot shorter than that same rally on a hard court and a full 1.75 shots shorter than those on clay courts. But since 2016, the grass and clay have converged with grass court rallies now lasting just 0.45 shots less than hard court rallies and 0.61 shots less than on clay. So in the simplest terms possible, grass courts at Wimbledon are now acting more like hard and clay courts than ever before. It has changed the way that some of these players prepare. They're no longer competing on grass courts for weeks on end before the tournament to get ready. They are more used to it and more accustomed to it, and they are more comfortable than ever before. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I had a bunch of fun putting together this episode, and I learned a lot myself. So do me a favor. If you enjoyed it also, or you learned something yourself, please share it with one or two of your friends. Other than that, enjoy the tournament this year. Have a great day, and we'll talk on Friday.